welcome everyone on a Friday afternoon and what has been an extraordinary week. Uh, this is an Election Watch Vice Presidential debrief. I've got a fabulous range of panellists today. Uh, before we begin, I would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of Australia. The University of Sydney stands on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. And I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. I acknowledge the traditional owners of the country on which you are on and pay respects to elders past, present and future. To take this acknowledgement of country to heart, like many of us, I've tried to get myself all the time better informed about Aboriginal history and Aboriginal issues, bring it into my teaching when I can and into my research, hopefully into the future. I have some plans to look at Black Lives Matter and the Australian response to this from the Aboriginal community. We've got a terrific sort of range of people to talk to today. I'm going to introduce them in a minute. I mean, it's been a kind of extraordinary week in American politics. Uh, my name is Brendan O'Connor. I'm an associate professor in American politics at the US Study Center at the US University of Sydney. Like many of you, I'm a US presidential election junkie. I watched most of the debates since 1996. And I have a few of them on VHS that I used to show my students, but I suppose VHS isn't going to be sort of much use into the future. Today we're going to discuss the presidential, the vice presidential debates and what's been an extraordinary week in American politics. Some would say it was one of the most bizarre weeks in the Trump administration, but if I said that, other people would say, no, 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 the impeachment week was or the week of this was. But just reflecting on a couple of things this week, President Trump last Friday, Australian time, diagnosed with COVID-19 and his wife, others in the White House. His physician then put a performance on about his health in the Walter Reed Hospital, which reminded me of the NBC show uh, where the doctor there on 30 Rock uh, is often known to sort of treat medicine in a way that is uh, extraordinary. Then there was the drive-by at his own hospital by Donald Trump, endangering his own security staff. A return to the White House balcony with a thumbs up that some have compared to General Pinochet of Chile. Uh, then he quickly the next day rejected stimulus negotiations with Nancy Pelosi. Uh, Trump then demanded to be able to attend the second debate, which is only in six days time, uh, live rather than virtually and has rejected the commission's want to run the debate virtually. Overnight, he's called for Attorney General William Barr to prosecute Barack Obama and Joe Biden over interference in the 2016 election. So like many of you, I'm left breathless for this week. Every time I check the New York Times, uh, I feel like something extraordinary is going to be revealed. But enough from me. We have three great panelists today, all excellent media commentators in high demand at the moment. So I think we're very lucky to have them with us. Kim Hoggart first is a uh, a former US government official who worked for two presidents as a spokesperson and press secretary. She served as assistant press secretary in the Reagan White House and principal deputy assistant of state for the public affairs for George H.W. Bush, the first Bush president. Dr. Jennifer Hunt is a non-residential fellow at the US Studies Center, former graduate of the University of Sydney. Jen and I have worked together, taught together. Uh, it's very nice to have her back virtually and as a fellow at the center. Uh, she's a lecturer now in national security at the ANU at the National University of Australia. Uh, she is uh, an expert on national security policy and has published on comparative US, Australia and Arab Gulf security. And lastly, my colleague, Karana Gergic, we've been in many of these things, a series of elections. Uh, she's jointly appointed at the US Studies Center in the Department of Government and International Relations at the University of Sydney. Karana was a visiting fellow at the Harvard Center for European Studies in 2019. And in 2021, she'll be joining the NATO Defense College as the Partners Across the Globe Fellow. Uh, Garana is a research expert in US politics, foreign policy, transatlantic relations, conflict resolution, democratization. Okay, so let's get into the questions. First of all, you, Kim, I mean, this week's vice presidential debate was billed as being more consequential uh, than normal because of Joe Biden's age, 77. He may only serve one term, making Kamala Harris well positioned to be possibly the first woman and first 
woman African-American president in 2015. Similarly, Mike Pence is likely to run for the presidency in 2024. Uh, and with an unwell president this week, uh, the role of the vice president came into sharp focus. I mean, they're there as a backup. Um, that is. So did the debate live up to the hype? And do you think the debate will have any impact on the 2020 race? Well, those are both excellent questions, Brendan, and uh, thanks for having me, and hello to Jen and Garana. Very impressed. Uh, I'm very pleased to be with two impressive women today, because I think this debate uh, came about in a very historic year for many reasons, but, um, you know, the fact that I think that it's really uh, uh, an election focused on women uh, in many respects, and I want to get to that. But like you just did in outlining the current um, climate in Washington in just the last 24 hours, I, I'd like to add to that, you know, um, just to, to remind ourselves this current picture is so unusual and, shall we say, bizarre. I mean, we have a White House that's overrun with the virus, the president infected, the first lady infected, his campaign manager infected, his head of the Republican National Committee, who is the chief fundraising arm for the campaign, infected. We've got the Pentagon top echelon quarantined uh, because they've been exposed to someone infected. We've got all these Republican senators who are rushing to put through a Supreme Court nomination infected. And we've got an, a White House staff just completely uh, debilitated by the virus. And, and we've got images of empty White House halls. It's like a ghost town uh, with a Ghostbuster-like person in there defumigating the place. It's absolutely extraordinary. And staff, what are remaining, have to apply the PPE, the full box and dice with the gloves and the mask and the goggles to enter the Oval Office. I mean, it, it's an extraordinary image in my mind, having, having worked there. And, you know, in an environment where the president is now 16 points behind Biden in the polls, I mean, it's, they're really struggling to come up with a good news story. They haven't had one, you know, and you've just outlined the hospitalization and all of that, that, you know, and his return to the White House. Um, so, you know, going into this debate, everybody's looking at these vice presidential candidates with a, a, a fresh focus. We probably wouldn't even be having this discussion today, uh, really, over a vice presidential debate if it weren't for the extraordinary circumstances that we find ourselves in in this election year. Um, so, so what, what, you know, here we've got this debate, an extraordinary woman, the first time uh, a black American, a uh, Indian American up for a, a major uh, presidential candidate, uh, vice presidential ticket. Um, and, and, and a polished vice president who has to go in and defend an administration now that's almost four years in. And, and he comes off probably as one of the few people that's had the sharpest defense of the Trump administration, no matter how misleading or deflective we can talk about all that, but probably better than any of the president's other men and women, and certainly better than the president himself. But what happens? It doesn't last. The one, the one minute that Republicans have a chance to say, hmm, this, this, this turned out better than we expected, what happens? The president steps all over the story. Now, having worked in the White House, the one thing you learn right away is you don't step on your one good news story of the day. You know, you do not let any other activity or any other official get out in front of that story. You milk that story for as much as, much as you can. But, but, but the, you know, 12 hours later, the president's doing his interview with Fox Business, and he steps all over it in yeah. so many amazing ways, which we can get into. But now yeah. we're at the point where we say, 
What debate? Yeah. Old news. I suppose Old many news. of us, to, to some degree, to our sort of personal sort of questioning of ourselves, Trump is this attention-seeking kind of missile, isn't he? I mean, many see the presidency in some regards as an extension of reality television rather than a policy-oriented presidency. Garana, I want to ask you the question that I've heard a number of people discuss. There's been a lot of discussion about Kamala Harris playing it safe during the debate, that she was not particularly confrontational, she didn't challenge maybe Pence in ways that some people might have hoped at times. Was this because the Biden-Harris ticket is so far ahead in recent polls, or does it really reflect a kind of sexist and racist attitude that many voters have, where an African-American woman can't be seen as being too aggressive debating a highly conservative white man. If I think back to the Barack Obama, John McCain debate, McCain was often trying to sort of egg Obama into responding with more passion and maybe some anger. And Obama, with his coolness and calmness, never, never played into that game. But if you see someone like Elizabeth Warren debate this year, and some of us were thrilled and maybe gasped at her debate performances, she didn't hold back at all. She was, I think, one of the most sort of cutting debaters that I can ever remember seeing. So what are your thoughts on these kind of expectations and how they affected Harrison, her debate performance? Sure, thanks, Brendan. And um, great to be here with uh, colleagues from uh, the center. I think this is one of the first uh, kind of uh, majority women uh, panels and uh, one that's fully uh, 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 showcasing the expertise that we have at the center. So it's great to see that. Um, and that actually brings me to, to the answer here around the, the gender expectations and um, basically the, the kind of double bind that women face when they run for uh, political offices. So um, I would go back to 2008, which you mentioned, but I wouldn't go back to Obama and McCain debates, but actually to Hillary Clinton's run in the primaries. And to me, what was interesting in 2008 um, was that Hillary Clinton needed to make a case that she uh, had what it takes to take that famous 3 a.m. Uh, call. Uh, and uh, a lot of people saw that basically as an attack on Obama to say that he lacks uh, the expertise and the experience to actually deal with international emergencies. But at the same time, I think it was, it was doing two jobs. It was doing that, but also trying to make this case that a woman is uh, equally capable to be the commander in chief. And then what was really interesting in 2016 was uh, to see how Hillary's campaign had to pivot basically. And uh, there was this series of tweets on how grandmothers know best. And, and there was this whole talk about Hillary playing this kind of grandmother gambit. Some were saying that this was actually something that was really helpful to Hillary because uh, by playing the grandmother in chief card, she would soften her occasionally hard edges, which means basically she would be more appealing to those that are put off by uh, strong women or opinionated women. Um, and that this uh, was a welcome change. But then, you know, in the water up of the elections and all the postmortems that were done, uh, there was this question, was she, you know, was she likable enough? Was there something wrong with the way that, you know, she uh, brushed her hair or the way she wore a particular pantsuit and so on and so forth? Which brings me to this uh, election cycle when we actually had six women running in the Democratic primaries. And um, I would say certainly, you know, uh, some of them have received more kind of uh, coverage that, that forms to those kind of sexist or at least gender lens. Um, you mentioned Senator Warren. I don't think that she was immune to some of the, the coverage that had a particularly gendered lens. But um, certainly, if you think about Kamala Harris, she faced this double bind. Uh, and she faced what is uh, at, at the kind of um, crux of the issue, a kind of question of intersectionality, both a question of race and gender coming together, right? And we've seen a lot of the coverage actually uh, either, you know, examining her ambition, you know, is she ambitious 
uh, is she too ambitious? This is actually something that Donald Trump uh, was using uh, immediately after uh, vice presidential uh, uh, nominee pick was announced. Um, but also some saying, well, actually, you know, she's, she's too warm, she's connecting too much, she's maybe too vague, um, non-committal, and, and so on and so forth. And this is basically something, again, that uh, we will continue to see for the remaining uh, three weeks of this campaign. Uh, I personally think in uh, the debate that we uh, uh, watched yesterday, um, she was doing a pretty great job trying to not come out too hard and, and kind of too confrontational, but you could really see that. You could see those moments where she's kind of nodding her head while Mike Pence is uh, telling what are clearly fairy tales uh, and trying to also uh, keep it uh, very cool and, and kind of level by basically trying to speak uh, and saying, Mr. Vice President, I'm, I'm speaking here. Uh, he keeps on going on. So this is a, a standard double bind. Uh, and um, that, that's something that she will have to confront, as I said, on both levels of gender and race uh, as, as they um, come to a head. In, in yeah, that's, that's excellent, Corona. I mean, many of us were probably noticing Pence's sort of uh, tendency to say, I just need to finish, I just need to say this. And I think we've all been in discussions, maybe often with men, where that, that, is, that is a rather annoying kind of tendency. Now, Jen, you've just written a report on COVID-19, which I really encourage people to get at, looking at sort of misinformation, which sounds fantastic, and uh, people should chase up your website for that. So I'm kind of like a debate moderator. Now we turn to COVID-19, and you've got the really tough question of, the death rate in the United States for many of us has been extraordinary. 64 deaths per 100,000. In Canada, it's 26. Germany, 12. Australia, four for every 100,000. The total death toll in America has gone over 212,000, a figure that just strikes me as just heart sort of wrenching. Over 7.6 million people have been positively tested for the coronavirus. How does this not automatically end uh, the Trump Pence administration's chances of re-election, or do Americans not tend to compare their results in their country and their experience to other countries? In a state like Florida in July, when they had plenty of time to prepare after the New York wave, there was one day where there were 15,000 cases of COVID were uh, diagnosed, uh, but Trump is still competitive in the state of Florida. I mean, he's gen generally behind in the polls, but still competitive. So how can this be? How can this record that from the outside looks extraordinarily negative, looks damning, how can Trump is, you know, I, don't, I think many of us would say he's definitely behind, but in states like Florida, the crucial state, bellwether state, he's, he's not out of the game. How can this be? And it, did Pence offer some kind of defense of this in the debate? Thank you so much for the question, Brendan. Great to be back at the US Study Center and with an August panel. Um, so I would say if you are interested in ruining your Friday evening, I have written a report on disinformation and COVID-19 for the Global Health Security Network. So that's a free report. It's, it's 20 pages, best paired with an, uh, perhaps an, uh, an adult beverage. Um, but there's also a webinar version, which you can probably pair with caffeine. Um, so I would say that um, the US is the hotspot the hotspot of both the virus itself and the hotspot of the misinformation machines and online social media and Fox News and the president himself that spreads this disinformation throughout the global information commons. Um, even just repeating what the president says about the virus is spreading misinformation about its origin, about its severity, about the efficacy of mitigation efforts. You saw the president tweeting, liberate Michigan, liberate Virginia, they're after your second amendment um, when those governors instituted stay at home orders. Just yesterday, uh, I saw that six people were charged with terrorism offenses for a plot to kidnap, try, and potentially execute the governor of Michigan, which Trump targeted in those tweets, uh, and specifically mentioning her stay-at-home orders as a form of tyranny and treason. Um, so if we're wondering why the U.S. is a global hotspot, it's because these mitigation efforts have been undermined at every turn uh, at the federal level, um, and states haven't been able to even implement mask mandates, perhaps even at the local level, without other officials trying to overturn them. Um, 
In terms of comparisons with other countries, I think Americans are very concerned about their global reputation. I think the sense that the, the rest of the world pities the United States is a very new emotion. Um, you know, whether you love the United States, you hate the American, you know, hate the United States, Americans are used to sort of those strong emotions. They're not used to being pitied. Um, but of course, you see the president himself uh, pushing back against any per capita comparisons. You saw him claim not to know what the term meant in that famous interview with Jonathan Swan, who did a great, a, a great job of holding him to task uh, with charts and graphs. So I think that perhaps the messages aren't getting through to the American public if they're on their Facebook closed groups, if they're in Fox News's ecosystem, um, if they're on AM radio like Rush Limbaugh. They've been continuously taught that this virus is uh, over-exaggerated, that the death toll is uh, overblown, um, and that these measures are just a form of, of control or distraction from greater issues. So I will just close on the point that um, for Pence's participation in the debate, healthcare was always going to be a huge issue. That was the issue during the 2018 midterm elections, which led to a blue tsunami in the House and around state legislature buildings. When he was questioned about this, uh, there was a lot of deflection. Um, and I think it's very hard for him to support uh, the government's actions on this. And he is the, the head of the task force. It's demonstrably vivid that they've done a poor job of distributing PPE, of implementing those supply chains in a timely fashion, of helping states as opposed to competing with them for these vital resources. And I think that actually builds on Pence's pretty poor reputation in public health circles. Uh, you know, as governor of Indiana, he oversaw one of the largest HIV outbreaks in the state um, by closing down some of those uh, public health initiatives and reintroducing them, you know, very delayed. Um, and, and, you know, estimates have shown that 90% of the impact of that outbreak could have been mitigated had Pence taken action earlier. So I think on this topic, Pence didn't have a very strong record to run on. And it's very hard to defend the indefensible in this administration. Well, there's been great, three great responses. I'll, get, I'll ask you each one more question. If you wanna jump in and uh, when someone said something, that'd be great. And I encourage people to put some questions in the Q&A. Um, Kim, you've watched many debates like myself, many presidential debates, many vice presidential debates. Were they ever once a place of substance politically or in terms of policy? Uh, that issues were debated in an illuminating matter. I remember there was a time where a few journalists contacted me and they wanted to set up an Australian debate commission because they so admired the American commission. Uh, there were a few people calling for that after the first presidential debate of this year. And were there moments of substance in this week's vice presidential debate? I know that maybe you and myself had frustration with the moderator. The, she could have at times, I think, followed up, maybe just been a little more of a stronger hand in the debate and said, now, now, or what about the evidence on this? Or some people say it's not like that. Um, what, what, were your, what were your thoughts? Was there a golden age of the US presidential debate that we can uh, hark back to? Or have they never been places of substance? Uh, thanks for that question, Simon. Um, look, I think everyone realizes that these are really political theater, nothing more. We really never get to hear anything of much substance. We really are just judging, getting a feeling for how somebody has responded. And, what, and, and the telltale proof of that is what do we remember from any of these debates? We remember a line, you know? We remember JFK and Nixon and, and Nixon's shadow, you know, uh, whiskers. When, uh, when they debated, you know, it, it, it doesn't really ever produce a lot of um, illuminating information for the public. They, by and large, people are either, uh, you know, they're confident about their decision that they've already sort of leaning to, or they decide not to uh, vote for someone because of something that they didn't like when they saw the, the debate. You know, when Reagan, debated Carter in one debate, because Carter didn't want to do two. He just wanted one. He didn't want to do any, really, but he did one. 
and and Reagan took him took him down with one line because Carter said something that was just another you know bit of misleading information and and Reagan just said there he goes again and when he debated uh, Mondale in 1984 he did terribly in the first debate Nancy Reagan you know lambasted the White House staff and said afterwards and said what have you done to Ronnie you know, you've turned him into this blabbering, you know, couldn't get, he couldn't get any of his facts straight because he had been totally overbriefed. And so then for the second debate, it was like, back off, let him, let Reagan be Reagan. And in response to uh, uh, criticism from Walter Mondale about his tax cuts or something, uh, or his age, it was about his age and, and you know, at what was he then, 74. Uh, and, and Reagan responded with, well, I won't hold the relative youth and inexperience of my opponent against him. And that's all anybody remembered. One line that everybody laughed, they're like, Reagan, you know, we can, we, we don't have to be happy about some of his policies, but we know he's a decent person. You know, and, and George Bush, when he, um, when he, was debating Bill Clinton, he looked at his watch as he was being asked a question about, have you ever had to struggle economically? And he couldn't, he didn't even understand the question. He had a hard time answering it, but it was the looking at his watch. Um, and, and Obama, when in his debate, you know, it was on the night of his um, wedding anniversary and everyone criticized him and said, you look like you didn't want to be there. You look totally bored on his the second, you know, second term election. And so this is, you know, no, their political theater, uh, we certainly saw something explosive on the presidential debate between Trump and Biden. And on this debate, we had such uh, high expectations for Kamala Harris. Uh, and I agree with what Gorana said, the expectations on women are completely different on a, a completely different lens. She's representing so much to so many women out there. And the fact that she has a prosecutorial background. So I think there was a lot of assumptions that she would bring this skill to the debate and, and people were looking forward to that sort of theater. Uh, yes, people are saying, well, this was a more normal debate. We, we got into some issues. Uh, we, we heard positions. But getting back to Jen's comments, we heard a lot of disinformation during, during this particular debate. And, and uh, I think uh, Kamala got off some, some good one-liners. And I'm speaking, Mr. Vice President, will certainly become the T-shirt meme. And that may be the very one that, that we remember from, from this debate. Um, I think people calling it normal, though, it's not normal to me at all, not at all. Because to me, the, pex the plexiglass not just speaks volumes about where we are in terms of illness in the United States, but it's symbolic of where we are politically in the United States with this barrier, this seemingly impenetrable barrier between Republicans and Democrats uh, and the nation in, in terms of the, what some describe as the cultural war going on. I don't know that it's so much as a cultural war as a changing yeah. of, changing I, I, of I, things. But I, yeah. I, found, I found that some of what was being said last night uh, was a bit, I found Pence's performance very professional, completely opposite to the president's behavior, very disciplined. Uh, had his talking points, but I found what he was saying somewhat chilling because on, out of one side of the mouth are the facts that he wants to put forward either on COVID or the economy or what have you. But the fact that we couldn't really speak to white supremacy or he tried to do the revisionist thing that the GOP had been doing around those remarks about Charlottesville that are, are so infamous from the president that they were good you know, good people on both sides. Um, that sort of, that to me is, is quite chilling. So people can say this was a normal debate in the sort of more traditional style, 
but not to me, not at all. Yeah, I mean, another factor that we saw at the presidential debate and the vice presidential debate was Democrats, their partners turning up with masks, showing respect for that policy. And the, the Trump children at the first debate remarkably just cavalier about the rules, sitting in the gallery without the masks, uh, people coming up to the stage at the end, Mike Pence's wife without a mask. They're still turning the wearing of masks into a, into a Democrat-Republican divide. For many of us on the outside, that's been extraordinary. Garana, do debates though matter in terms of the polls? I mean, are debates likely to uh, lead to a momentum for a ticket? Uh, can you think of some maybe example of that in the past? And is, uh, are the debates of this year likely to have an impact on the actual outcome of the election? Yeah, sure. Um, there is this question whether um, debates are, are merely spectacles and just another um, milestone in uh, the final uh, weeks of, of the campaign in the lead up to the election, or is there true substance to them? Um, I'd say that the effect of general election debates uh, probably in, in the way um, that uh, the media has been describing it has been probably a bit overhyped. Um, if you look at the political science research, it tends to show that basically uh, rarely have there been uh, uh, major sort of swings. There have been probably a few percentage points change as a result of some uh, uh, debates. We probably look back to 2012, Obama's first uh, debate against Mitt Romney as one that, that's often shown as kind of exemplary of, of one where, you know, the president really underperformed and, you know, this really brought into question uh, his viability in 2012 election. Um, but overall, you know, you also have to think about the fact that general election debates are not primary debates, right? There are already very strong partisan loyalties in a kind of hyper-partisan environment that uh, United States finds itself these days. Uh, majority of the debate viewers are those people who have already made up their minds, right? So basically, it boils down to then some of these zingers that Kim was referring to, the, the notable lines that might be used by either of the campaigns that will be packaged and then repurposed for uh, ads uh, uh, moving further into the campaign. But uh, as I said, on the whole, there is some evidence maybe that uh, may maybe some debates might matter if the race is close, which obviously brings us to the question of whether this is a close race. And if you take a look at the trend lines, basically since the beginning of this year, uh, the polls, certainly those national ones, have been stubbornly uh, in Joe Biden's favor in most of the swing states, the trend lines again uh, are going against President Trump. Now, there is the question of whether we are seeing maybe uh, uh, some kind of uh, maybe over over uh, hyped and enthusiasm in the polls for uh, Joe Biden, whether there might be a, what's called the non-partisan uh, response, uh, sorry, partisan non-response at play, meaning that those Republicans who will end up voting for President Trump are simply not saying that in some surveys, um, the kind of shy Trump voter effect. Um, there might be some, some uh, fragmented evidence pointing to that. But if you, you know, uh, look back to our webinar from just uh, two weeks ago, Charlie Cook of the Cook Political Report is pretty adamant about, uh, uh, you know, this being uh, Joe Biden's year and that uh, the, the, all of the trends are, are pointing uh, towards some sort of blue wave, uh, definitely uh, disagreeing with, with any sort of idea that uh, Donald Trump stands a great chance. So, um, you know, I would say just in a, a race that's so saturated with events and, and kind of daily crisis, right? Last week, this, you know, exactly on Friday uh, afternoon, we were doing a webinar when the news just broke that basically uh, President Trump and First Lady Melania Trump tested positive. Um, this basically just reset the, the entire uh, uh, coverage. And by Monday already, 
it was the talk of President Trump doing something as reckless as uh, getting into a motorcade in a hermetically sealed vehicle with uh, um, the, the security service uh, around him. I mean, so, you know, even if the debate seven effective it will be hard to isolate exactly to what extent is it the debate, you know, that has changed people's minds. And we've seen some polls showing that, you know, you had the Times in, in Siena, uh, a survey that showed that in uh, Pennsylvania, uh, Biden was now ahead by seven points in Florida, I think about five points. But again, those are those are stocks in time, right? We need to look at the trends. Um, so um, it's it's a very, I hate that term, but it's an unprecedented race. It's an unprecedented campaign. It's taking place in the context of the greatest pandemic in 100 years, the biggest recession uh, in, in, this, uh, in the same time, um, uh, great uh, racial uh, justice protests uh, that have been going on. So um, it's, it's all a, a part of that kind of bigger picture. Uh, debates are just one of those bleeps on, on the radar. Yeah, I mean, my sense is that in 92, as Kim said, when George H.W. Bush looked at his watch, that there was a sort of tide was turning to Clinton. I mean, Bush probably expected to be a two-term president, but Bill Clinton was a great performer in debates. I mean, there are many things you could say about Bill Clinton, but in 92, and then in particularly in 96 against Bob Dole, he really dominated those debates with Dole was performances in those debates. Like those are the ones I have on VCR that I used to show the students. And they, they're, they're cringeworthy in the modern sort of media imagery. But And don't forget Ross Perot, obviously. Yes, Ross Perot yes. and both of them, uh, yeah. his, uh, his extraordinary sort of involvement. Jen, I want to ask you a question about foreign policy. That One of the things I do remember about the Obama sort of various debates Obama was on in 2008, was that he said two extraordinary things in the debates, which we probably should have paid more attention to, or a few people did. He said he'd negotiate with Iran, that he was willing to negotiate with Iran, and he was willing to use drones in Pakistan without the approval of the Pakistani government. And those things turned out to be pretty significant. So has there been anything you've heard in the first presidential debate this year, or the vice presidential debate, that sort of pricked your ears up and you thought, oh, that's that's something to think about down the track, particularly on these big issues of China and global warming. I mean, many of us are very concerned about the US relationship with China, Australia's relationship with China, also about the undoubted warming of the planet, which has been an incredibly neglected and denied, in fact, issue in the Trump administration. Did we hear things in the debates which kind of should give us cause for thought or hope or alarm? Um, I'm interested in your thoughts. Sure. So I think, um, as expected, it was predominantly a domestic focus for all the reasons that we've mentioned. Um, public health, but also gun control. We've had, we've had the largest massacres in the United States during the Trump administration. Uh, there have been more uh, Americans filing for unemployment this year than the total number that voted for Trump in 2016. Um, and remember, when you lose your job in the American system, you also lose your health care, your employee provided health care. So in the middle of a pandemic, it's just multiple avenues uh, of stress. And so I would say the domestic focus is to be expected now and in sort of the short to medium term. Um, I will say I, I heard just a couple of questions about climate change and, and I it always hits a nerve uh, when people frame it as a belief, right? The moderator, the moderator asks, do you believe in climate change? Uh, this is not a religion. Uh, the question should be either, do you understand climate change? Or just move right past that and say, what are you going to do to fight climate change? And, and they should be approaching this topic because the largest voting bloc in the United States is now millennials. Those are people aged, uh, well, almost 40. I'm a millennial, so we can't use it as shorthand for kids these days. Uh, so a birth year of 1981 to 1996. Those are the largest voting blocks now in the United States, um, surpassing the baby boomers who have been the largest block since the 1970s. And the key issue here is that millennials have a totally different policy priority menu. Climate change, gun control, health, health care, um, economic opportunity, 
Uh, and, and these sort of policy preferences aren't about um, tax cuts and write-offs and retirement homes and second beach houses. These are a matter of survival. And so people are getting probably earlier involved in, in politics and in voting than they probably otherwise would have because these are existential threats uh, to millennials and Gen X and all the way down. And I think probably the most, the, the most memorable part of this debate won't be the topics at all. It'll probably be that fly, uh, the fly that landed on Mike Pence and stayed there for a couple of minutes. Um, the Biden campaign immediately released a fly swatter on its shop called uh, Fighting, uh, like Truth Over Flies, I think was the tagline there. And really participating in what I would have called a very Trumpian, um, you know, merchandising effort. So I, I normally call Trump uh, the merchant of menace because the things that he sells on his website are incredibly partisan and divisive. So it's not just Team Trump, which you would expect to see in any taxpayer subsidized campaign shop. They're sort of actively dismiss, dismissive of political opposition. They sell onesies for kids that say, I cry less than Democrats. They have shirts that feature uh, Schiff's face, uh, who led the House Intelligence Committee and the impeachment hearings with Bull Schiff, right? So these are, these are personal and partisan attacks on the opposition. Uh, and, and I remember last year around this time, the Trump campaign released uh, a pin that it was selling, uh, a Sharpie. This was supposed to mimic the Sharpie that was used to change the hurricane forecast map in September of 2019 to accord with Trump's outdated tweets. And so they sold this pin, this Sharpie for 15 bucks with a tagline, set the record straight, okay? So we're now seeing the Biden campaign participate in some of that merchandising, some of that memeing for profit. Uh, that we didn't see under the Hillary campaign. And, and, and Trump really started that out of the gate last year. Well, 2016 in October was sort of the first, the first piece of merchandise that I noticed on this theme when Trump was selling Hillary for prison buttons. So we're really radicalizing the population with some of this divisive messaging, with some of this merchandise that will probably long outlive the Trump administration itself. And I would expect long beyond the debate, we'd be seeing some of these messages, some of this apparel uh, used in the future. Yeah. Great responses. I, I want to go to questions from the audience. We've got plenty of time for people. If you want to type them in, I'll try to get to them. Robin Jewell has an excellent question, which is very much sort of the topic of the morning. Are there going to be any more of these debates this year? I mean, Trump refusing to engage in a, in a, in a, in a Zoom debate, I think worried that he could be muted uh, or, uh, you know, that this would be an easier way to control him. I mean, many of us watched that first debate and wondered, for, particularly at the beginning, when Chris Wallace, I think, lost control, was, was Donald Trump the moderator and one of the participants as he was sort of sending these insults and questions at Joe Biden constantly? So what will be the impact? Anyone who wants to jump in on, if there are no more debates, what will be the impact on the campaign? Should Biden maybe turn up to a town hall by himself and be a sole debater? Um, or is this a blessing in disguise? I mean, are we getting, does anyone want to come I'd love to, I'd love to speak to this issue because, um, like I said before, they are political theater, but that's what Donald Trump likes. And he likes to be the, uh, the messenger. He doesn't like other people speaking for him. And I, I wondered even, this may be a bit, Machiavellian thinking on my part, but maybe he came out with his interview on Fox Business because Vice President Pence was going to maybe get too much credit. I don't know. I, I mean, I'm not saying he won the debate. I'm not saying anybody won or lost because I think that's a useless exercise too. But, um, you know, he, he is his own communicator. He, he has, he's had four different press secretaries, one of whom never gave a briefing for an entire year in her entire period as a press secretary. You know, she's now with the first lady, but you know, he, he wants to do his own briefing. He took over the white house coronavirus task force task force briefings because the vice president was getting all this attention. Dr. Fauci was getting all this attention. He wants the attention. He definitely wants another debate because of what happened in his first debate, which backfired on him. 
So I think he definitely wants to try to make that up. There's no reason for Vice President Biden to do another one. You know, he can go out and do his own town hall. He doesn't need Donald Trump to, to interrupt that. Donald Trump could do his own. And I think given the seriousness of of the pandemic and that cases are rising in the United States and we have more states, I think there's only three or five states that are actually going down in infection rates. So I, I, think, it, I think it's un, completely unnecessary to have one. They can, or they can do a remote debate, maybe one more debate. But I, I don't think that the president's going to find that he's going to be able to, to benefit from it. He can't yeah. control himself. And I, you know, I think it's just going to get out of hand. As far as last night's debate with the moderator, and you mentioned I, uh, earlier, Brendan, I was a bit disappointed in the format um, because I do feel like there should have been follow-up questions that were really important. And there were answers, both, both of them didn't give answers, uh, clear answers, particularly on um, uh, as the question was posed, and I'm not sure even some of the posed questions, you know, obviously didn't elicit, elicit the best answer, but on one was about presidential disability and the 25th Amendment, and, and no one, no one addressed that. And now we hear today, Nancy Pelosi is talking about pulling together a hearing to see whether the president, you know, mental state and physical state needs to be examined uh, as to, you know, and how that would affect invoking the 25th Amendment. But, you know. It would be, yeah. be really good to get people's responses on this question of abortion rights. You know, Trump and Pence obviously keen to get uh, six conservatives on the Supreme Court, get the Supreme Court yep. through as soon as possible. Uh, this would, in theory, create six people who are against the landmark Roe v. Wade decision of 1973, which gives women the right to choose on abortion. Has there been any signs that white women particularly, who in some states helped get Trump over the line in 2016, are for this issue and other issues turning against the Trump-Pence ticket this time round, and that we get a sense that this abortion rights issue, maybe other health concern issues for women in general, that there is a sense that white females, particularly in the United States, are turning against uh, Trump in a way that they didn't. Many people like myself thought they would in 2016, but they didn't. Uh, is, there, is this different in 2020? Well, we've seen the 2018 midterms um, where obviously the suburbs went for Democrats in a historic blue wave uh, election there. So we've seen certainly the Republican Party making now a concerted effort during the uh, convention to portray the party as really diverse, trying to appeal to women in suburbia, but at the same time then uh, using these sort of uh, the messages that are uh, maybe too overt in that sort of appeal with, you know, scaring women in suburbia with Cory Booker, who is a, a vegan senator, about him going to, to the suburbs to, to get them and, and kind of playing into these old tropes, the racist tropes of the fear that white women should have um, in, in um, uh, the, the kind of presence of African-American men. Um, but um, to, to go back to your question, Brendan, I think that, I mean, on, on issues such as abortion, obviously we know uh, that uh, this has been uh, the main pitch, not just to women, but basically to the religious, to, to the, the evangelical right in particular, the de delivery of not just Supreme Court justices, but basically stacking the, the top uh, levels of the judiciary. So the federal bench uh, that Trump has been able to do is something that basically Basically needs to be rewarded and needs to uh, be preserved uh, and that this uh, uh, is basically a method uh, to, to then get elected. Uh, the extent to which this is going to be successful when it's mixed at the same time with obvious uh, um, uh, inability to deal with the pandemic and its fallout, you know, uh, now when we see that majority of people are again having uh, the, the pandemic at the forefront of their attention, 
uh, is, is something that, that we need to take into account. This is not 2016 and it's not as, as simple of an equation as it was maybe then. Maybe Jane, I, you, can, you can, can I just point out on, on that, Brendan, that according to research, and, and, and maybe Jen or Garana have seen this research because it's either Pew or Gallup, but 60% of women and 60% of men feel that it is a woman's right to have reproductive choices, reproductive access to good reproductive health and have the right to make decisions. The train has left the station on the issue of abortion in America. But what we hear from are people uh, that in a minority that feel very, very strongly and passionate about it. But all the polls show that most Americans have come to accept that, you know, reproductive rights are important for women. And now we've had the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who was a champion for gender equality uh, and, and somebody who could focus on all the indiscriminate, uh, the discriminatory aspects of law in such a way as to benefit all people, not just women. And, and we're in a climate in America, uh, where uh, as everyone's pointed out about the, the number of women who are voting in 2018, but not just voting, they're running for office and they're winning. And, you know, the Senate, 100 seats in the Senate, women have a quarter of them. Uh, 435 seats in the House, women have less than a quarter of them. 50 governors, nine of them are women. You know, and and let's talk about court packing. Since 1969, 18 Supreme Court justices have been appointed. 14 have been appointed by Republican presidents, four by Democrats. So who's court packing? You know, <laughs> I think Kamala could have given that answer last night, but I think she might have not given an answer for a particular strategic reason. But you know, this to me is why it's really important to recognize that this is a, this really, this election is about women. Joe Biden recognized it. He recognized it. It was just he and Bernie Sanders standing at the end of a democratic primary process in which so many qualified women were there and yet again, except for once, not selected in terms of Hillary Clinton, but you know, perfectly qualified, but we left with two old men. So he's put, not only has he recognized the moment by picking a woman, saying he'd pick a woman, he's recognized further after the racial injustice issues of the summer and the protests and riots that, you know, it was time for a woman of color. And I, you can see he's the first man, white man, to work for a black president. And I think he wants to bookend his history, his legacy, as being the one that established a, a woman of color for the next step up to the high office. I want to get Jen in on this question of both of gender, but also this question of turnout, uh, building on Courtney O'Connor's question, uh, no relation. Uh, <laughs> I, this question of, I mean, for many of us, the Trump presidency and in his campaign was extraordinary in terms of its kind of misogyny. The second presidential debate with Hillary Clinton still strikes me as one of the worst moments of Trump's term and time in public life, turning up with Bill Clinton's accusers, saying he was gonna throw her in jail, sort of, it was something as one commentator described, it was like a well thought out op-ed piece versus the comment section beneath, the kind of, you know, industrial sort of scale trolling exercise. So the, the, the sexism, but I suppose also is turnout going to be this kind of key issue as it was for Hillary Clinton, maybe a slight disappointment about the female vote, about the African-American vote in some crucial states. Is there a sense, Jen, do you get from some of the swing states where you come from, North Carolina, down to Florida, back up to the Midwest, is, is there some sense that it will be different this time? I think following on from the trends of 2018, uh, 2018 midterm was the highest turnout as a percentage of the voting eligible population in a century, in 100 years. Uh, and I think the same issues that drove people to the polls in 2018 will only uh, further turn out in 2020. 
Um, we've already had more than 5 million people cast a ballot in the United States. There's a great project called the Electoral Project that's tracking the early vote by state. And some of that data is very interesting in that it records turnout by party. Some states release the information on ballots returned, ballots requested by party. And right now, ballots requested, especially in those key swing states that you mentioned, it's Democrats, Republican, two to one. Um, so I think recalling the largest peaceful protest in American history was the Women's March the day after his inauguration. You know, the unofficial motto of that event was today we march, tomorrow we run. And as Kim pointed out, women ran, newcomers ran, but also a whole new sort of professional um, and, and different occupations ran for office that we don't normally see. Nurses, physicians, scientists, people who normally stay well outside the political circles because it's so toxic, recognize that those skills are vital in making policy that's based on evidence and facts. And I think during the pandemic, you've passed up, you, he's pissed off two very important groups of women, a women do dominated occupations, nurses who were the front line of this pandemic and teachers. So I think that if he had a woman problem before, it's even worse now. Yeah. Maybe we finish on Kamala Harris introduced herself to the national audience in the primaries, uh, maybe in the confirmation hearings where she did a tremendous job of asking questions for Senator Brent, for the Supreme Court nomination of Brent Kavanaugh, and then in the vice presidential debate. Does anyone in the short time we have want to suggest, well, we've really seen the preview to a future president, that she is the sort of the leading likely candidate to be the first woman president of the United States? Well, she would be the logical choice for the Democrat Party, merely by her position as the number two representative of the party, uh, if, if uh, either in 2024 or, or 2028. Now, as we know, uh, a, a week or a day is a lifetime in politics. We'll, we'll have to see how we go, but, but um, there's nothing to suggest so far in her elected office, and this is often why presidents select people who have held elective office as their running mates, because they've been around the track, they understand the game, and they, you know, try to keep their nose clean. Well, some of them do, certainly not a lot of them, but, you know, there's nothing to suggest in her her background or anything that, that there's no reason why she is not capable. She's perfectly capable of, of stepping up to the highest uh, position. But, you know, let's, right. let's see going forward. Anyone else out there that you well, think? I would just say that obviously Kamala Harris has been a trailblazer for the entirety of her career. Um, and as a vice presidential pick, I think uh, her resume is as traditional as possible, you know, in, in the way that, he, that she got there. Um, but I would also say that in terms of her uh, political stances, it's quite clear that she moves in the lockstep with where the mainstream of the Democratic Party is. She's maybe progressed in, in recent years, but I think that the, the scare campaign of the far left, you know, controlling the Democratic uh, Party ticket is far, far from reality. And um, that really both Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are quite uh, the establishment candidates, which uh, also is quite interesting in the sense that we normally talk about the weaknesses of uh, American parties, uh, but it's clearly that uh, it's clearly been the case that the establishment has prevailed in the end. Jen, do you want to add to that? Sure, I'll be the last word. I would just say that given the United States currently has a president, the only president in American history without either military, political, or diplomatic experience, uh, there are no more barriers to entry and that we shouldn't hold democratic uh, you know, candidates to a double standard when the Republican Party doesn't. Yeah, well, thank you all for your wonderful responses. Uh, really uh, enlightened conversation. I encourage my colleagues to have you on all the panels uh, the rest of the year in the lead up to the election and then probably in the long post-election period of vote counting and, uh, and misinformation. So many of us are very concerned about how the election voting will take place. I'm sure there'll be many more discussions that the US Study Center holds on this topic of not just, you know, who won on the night, but who wins in the next week and where the Supreme Court is heading. So uh, 
thanks for those who turned up. And uh, I'd really like to thank the three panelists today for uh, fabulous responses, the really thoughtful uh, responses. We've also got an event for those of you who are kind of US uh, foreign policy as well as election junkies on the future of the US defense strategy in the Indo-Pacific. A really fantastic speaker, uh, former Under Secretary of Defense for the Obama administration, Michelle Fournoy, um, Fournoy who was uh, one of the sort of really thoughtful minds on defense policy in the United States, has published a number of interesting pieces. She's in conversation with my colleague, Ashley Townsend. So that you can uh, enroll in the usual places. I encourage you uh, to go to that. It should be uh, a great discussion and enjoy your afternoon. Uh, I wonder what's rolling in from the White House. Uh, it can't be as dramatic as last Friday, but um, it has been amazing and uh, sometimes frightening time to follow US politics. So uh, thanks for all uh, who've uh, joined us today.